our efforts through cinema and through film, like you said, are to one, to correct over a hundred years of misrepresentation of American, Native American people, uh, but also to try to create, you know, some modern representations of Native people as still living, being, you know, um, flourishing humans. Welcome to Reinvent Yourself with Dr. Tara. I'm your host, Dr. Tara, and I've been actively reinventing myself since I discovered the power of neuroplasticity. I have transformed myself personally, professionally, emotionally, and spiritually. And I'm here to show you that no matter your age or mindset, you can do it too. And because we're all about reinvention, season two is going to be quite different to season one. The episodes will be released weekly, and we've listened to your feedback and decided to go ad-free. There's a strong theme of ancient wisdom, which made me realize that the things we need to flourish in life, love, health, and work have been hiding in plain sight for millennia. I hope this season is as impactful for you as it is for me. In this episode, we will be sitting down with a producer and advocate for representation of the indigenous storytellers in film and television. My guest today belongs to the Cheyenne and Mescalero Apache tribal nations and has spent 25 years in media indigenizing Hollywood. He served as the director of Sundance Institute's Native American and Indigenous program for 20 years, championing such artists as Sterling Harjo and Taika Waititi, and is now executive producing films through his own company, Cloud Woman Media. Please welcome Bird Running Water. Bird, hi, welcome to the podcast. It's so nice to see you again after having met you once in LA. Hi, thank you for having me. It is really great to see you. All the way across the sea. All the way across. Um, <laughs> I was in LA a couple of times and we we didn't manage to overlap, but I was so keen to continue our conversation. So now we end up doing it on the podcast, which is great because everybody else can benefit from your wisdom as well. Yeah, well, thank you. And I'm actually um, dialing into you from my home reservation on the Mescalero Apache Reservation in southern New Mexico. Oh, Cool. Um, yeah. So why don't we start? Why don't we start there? I know you you shared with me that you come from two different tribes. So perhaps you could tell us about your heritage and also a bit about those tribes. Yeah, sure. Well, um, my parents do belong. Come from two different, you know, Native American tribes. My mother is Cheyenne from the Southern Cheyenne group in Oklahoma, and uh, because there are two 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 big groups of Cheyennes, one is. In Oklahoma, there's another one up in the northern parts of the United States in Montana. Um, and actually, I do have genealogical ties to both. And then um, my father belongs to the Mescalero Apache tribe, which is actually kind of a conglomeration of different kinds of Apache tribes. We have Mescalero Band, we have Chiricahua Band, we have Lapan, we have Warm Springs, all, all different bands of Apaches. And uh, so I actually have genealogical ties to two specific bands, the Mescalero Apaches and the Chiricahua Apaches. Okay. So, I mean, you know, I want to hear about your career and everything because it's so relevant, but it, what we're really finding in this season of the podcast is a strong theme of how Indigenous wisdom can be applied to modern health and particularly from my point of interest, mental health struggles. And when we chatted, you did you know, share some of those things with me. But what's your first thought when, when I say that, you know, the world is pretty much in crisis, young people are really struggling, um, relationships are breaking down, people are feeling lost. What is some of the wisdom that you've picked up from your, your mother and your grandmothers, particularly? Because it's a, that, are they both or one of them are matriarchal tribes? Is that correct? They, they actually all are. Yes. They're all matriarchal. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. so if you could, if you could, um, share maybe some of the stuff that you told me before, but also what comes to mind when I ask you these particular questions for our listeners about, you know, stories that have been passed on, um, from your grandmothers and before that you think could be useful for people to use in their life today. Yeah. Well, I think that I, first of all, I agree with everything that you stated that, you know, the world is in crisis and, you know, um, I think not only, um, climate wise, um, or politically, but even spiritually, you know, 
And, you know, and I do really have a strong um, belief that, you know, a a lot of our indigenous wisdom and beliefs um, could really lend some resolve to all of that crisis, you know, because there is a certain way that those of us who come from indigenous cultures and indigenous backgrounds, the way that we lived in harmony with our world, um, that... Mm -hmm. Once colonization did take place into our ancestral homelands, there was a huge disruption and, you know, and a really huge invasion of mostly, you know, Western European thought and process and religion and everything that, um, was, was really detrimental, you know, to all of those things that I just mentioned, you know, um, Mm. our climate and our politics and our, you know, our, um, spirituality. Um, and so, yeah. I feel though that through the colonization process, you know, like there, you know, I mentioned that I'm, I'm calling, dialing into you from the Mescalero Apache reservation. And the reservation mm-hmm. system is a very specific, um, political process in the American kind of, uh, formation of the country, uh, where the indigenous peoples were rounded up from our ancestral homelands and sent to mm-hmm. most often what you could call prison camps. Um, you know, reservations and but also Mm -hmm. while it was kind of one of those detrimental things that happened it really kind of it i try to look i try to look for the good and and the bad and most everything i do and so Mm. by 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 i think um you know hurting us onto reservations forced relocation onto reservations it kind of um had a peculiar effect because it kind of kept us contained and kind of kept so many things about our ancestral ways of life kind of kept, um, I wouldn't say preserved, but I would say just kind of functioning, um, amidst, mm-hmm. you know, great hardship and amidst great, mm-hmm. uh, turmoil, um, by, by the oppressor, by the col- the colonizers. And, and so, you know, I feel like right now in our modern era, we're really in an era of reclamation, of um, reconnection, um, and and what when what a lot of I think modern day activists would call decolonization, which is to really return to all of the ancestral, you know, ways and beliefs and thoughts of of pre-colonial times and the ways of doing things. Um, we have movements like what people would call what people are calling food sovereignty, which is kind of a, re- a return to our indigenous diets as opposed to, you know, the imposed Western diet that was, you know, forced mm-hmm. upon us during the reservation era, the beginning of the reservation era, where they removed us from our food systems. But a lot of young, you know, culinary activists, I would even say, are, are trying to return our communities to our ancestral diets, which, you know, I think would be a really um, great thing to happen. Because, you know, we mm. do have a lot of um, physical um, and mental and, you know, medical issues that stem from being converted to a Western diet. Um, yeah. But, you know, there's so much to draw upon. Uh, and I think one of the things that if I think back to my Apache beliefs um, and origins where I am now, we were fortunate that our reservation was placed right in the heart of our ancestral lands, right at the foot of one of our, one of our most sacred mountains. And so we weren't, um, I think as unfortunate as say my mother's tribe who were, um, forcibly removed from the land that now makes up the states of Wyoming and Colorado. And they were marched mm-hmm. to Oklahoma, uh, which was called Indian territory. So my mother's tribe were, you know, really forcibly removed from their ancestral lands. And so it's kind of a little, they both have very different experiences, you know, in the reservation era system. Uh, and I think that my Apache side, we just, we got really lucky um, in our political process. You know, our, our chiefs and our leaders were very great negotiators and they kept us within the boundaries of our ancestral lands and, you know, and close to our uh, traditional foods, um, and, you know, we really maintain one of our core ceremonies to this day, which goes back to, you know, our beginning times, which is uh, the womanhood ceremony, a puberty ceremony for young women. And mm-hmm. um, which really retells our origin story 
um, our our point of creation of our of our world and how we how the land that we now live on came into being and how the animals came into being how the plants and trees and everything came into being and how we you know um, came into being as well and that we descend from you know a particular uh, first person who was a woman and who is a woman. Mm. And so that's kind of the origins and the roots of our, of our matrilineal and matriarchal systems. Mm-hmm. Um, so interesting what you were saying about culinary activism, because um, in, this, in this season, I also spoke to a dietitian who emphasized the importance on each of our gut microbiomes of eating in keeping with our cultural heritage. Um, you know, so she specifically said to me, it's so important that you're eating lots of Indian spices. Um, and, you know, if I think about what I know about the impact of an unhealthy gut microbiome on your health and your mental health, it makes complete sense that, you know, returning to that is so important. And obviously, like, you know, quite recently, the Blue Zones documentary came out on Netflix and they do go to Costa Rica and find some people that still live very much in the ways that they always used to eat, which surprisingly is quite high in carbohydrates, but it's super healthy carbohydrates. And it's the combination that creates, you know, all the benefits in the gut. And I just wanted to also just check on something that you said, because you said that a Western diet was imposed. But you know, one of the kind of biggest crises in the USA at the moment is just that the diet is so bad. It's it doesn't matter if you're a white American, it what you're eating if what you're eating is bad then it's bad for your health you know it's not just that it's a western diet so do you feel that it was both of those things or one of those things particularly like the change of diet or the fact that it was such unhealthy food yeah i would agree with that i think i think it was both you know because um i mean you know both of my tribes the cheyennes and the apaches we were both nomadic peoples you know we were what Mm -hmm. i guess what could be called hunter gatherers. You know, we, our primary food system was centered around the buffalo, the bison. And, you know, that was our primary meat and protein. And then we also had, you know, elk and deer, um, you know, and other natural game that was indigenous to our own lands that we hunted and ate. And then we also gathered, you know, a lot of, um, a lot of foods that grew in our environment. Um, and mm-hmm. so, I think that once we are confined to the reservation, um, you know, the U.S. very systemically eradicated the bison in North America yeah. um, as a way of, of dealing with with our with the indigenous people and, and the native people mm-hmm. to, um, you know, eradicate our food source. So that would be we would yeah. be um, beaten into submission, I suppose. But you know, one of the things, and then when when we were confined to the reservation system, then they started what they called rationing. Um, beef, um, flour, mm. you know, wheat products, um, mm. you know, uh, other, other staples that we had never really had before, you know, rice, mm. um, and other, mm. you know, things like that. And, and most often because these foods were shipped from somewhere else far away from our lands, they weren't always well preserved. Most often they were rotted. Mm. Uh, um, they were inedible. Uh, but that was all that we were given to eat. And so we had to make do with, you know, with spoiled foods, you know. Um, and so, but going back to your assessment of the American diet, yes, you know, so because, you know, our, our food industries produce food at such, ma- in such mass quantities for mass mm. consumption, you know, the, those food preparation uh, systems aren't you know, operating the best that they could be because they are, you know, a lot of use of preservatives, you know, a lot of um, use of additives, a lot of use of added sugars, you know. So, yeah, it's a, it's a very, American food is very toxic. <laughs> and it's something that I don't know if uh, our country will, will ever recover from because uh, we can see the high incidence of of medical issues and diabetes and things just across the American population. Yeah. Um, In the brief time that I met you, I would have imagined from our interaction, from the way that you were dressed, from where we met, that you live what looks like a very Western life. So maybe you could share a bit about how you managed to live like that, but also, you know, maintain your cultural heritage. And in all ways, in you know what you eat, how you dress, the places that you go. <laughs> that's that's 
that's very interesting question. Um, well, I mean, I, you know, Native American people were very modern people, um, uh, despite our, despite our history, um, you know, and we all live and, and have to engage it with a modern world in different ways. And some people totally choose to reject it, which I admire. Um, but I also kind of have it, I descend from, um, a particular, uh, my Chiricahua Apache lineage, um, you know, that, that particular tribe of mine, um, I take a lot of inspiration from because we were held as prisoners of war of the United States. My great grandfather, my great great grandfather were imprisoned by the United States because they, they kind of were a part of the Chiricahuas who were Geronimo's band. And so, you know, we were the last tribe to essentially surrender, um, in the, in the American conquest of the West. And so, when we were imprisoned for 27 years and sent to different prison camps in Florida and Alabama and Oklahoma before we were finally released and sent to here to the Mescalero Reservation to uh, to finally be free and to try to continue to live as a tribe and as as people. And one of the things that uh, uh, that I've noticed in that history of, of that particular lineage of mine is how how innovative. Um, people were, you know, they were placed on a part of the reservation where, and a bunch of farming equipment was just dropped off and we were expected to survive, you know, mm-hmm. and, you know, we weren't traditionally farmers. We didn't know how farming equipment worked. Um, but I think we had with a newfound sense of freedom after being released, re- released as prisoners of war and a great sense of innovation and survival, you know, we adapted and we learned how to use that farming equipment. And pretty soon the valley where this, where our tribe had been dropped in, which wasn't their ancestral lands, um, was soon flourishing with farms and, you know, ranches and, you know, and sustainable food systems. And, and so I take a lot of inspiration from that while we maintained language and song and culture and ceremonies and, and what you could be, what could be classified, I guess, as religion, but you know, it's more, it's, it's bigger than that. Um, Mm -hmm. and so I take a lot of inspiration from that in terms of how I've approached my life, um, and how I have chosen to engage with the American world, with American society by Mm -hmm. seeking, you know, uh, an American education, but always constantly keeping one foot in, you know, in my traditional culture, um, whether ceremonies and, um, you know, society and um, celebrations and, you know, culture. I, I am not uh, fluent in my language, my languages, I guess. Um, my mom and dad's languages are completely unrelated. Um, they actually also have completely different creation stories and belief systems. And so that was always one thing kind of bobbing back and forth between two different indigenous cultures under the larger, you know, American cultural world. But I I feel really grateful to my parents for just, I don't think they really knew what to do. You know, I don't think they knew what Mm -hmm. to do with their, you know, with their mixed uh, heritage child uh, um, coming from two different tribes. But they always make sure that I was plopped and dropped and just right into the middle of ceremony and our celebrations and everything like that. And, and I always had to kind of go back and forth between grandparents and parents and relatives and trying to constantly translate and constantly trying to uh, interpret for one, what was happening for family from one tribe, what was happening in the other tribe and vice versa. Um, and then by going to college and becoming involved in the film industry, which nobody else in yeah. my family would ever even have thought of, um, constantly having to go back and forth to explain to them, this is what I'm studying. This is what I'm doing. I started my career working in what we call philanthropy um, and mm-hmm. grant making for one of our major trusts, which is the Ford Foundation. And that just blew everybody's mind, you know, that <laughs> I was responsible for a portfolio of money and giving grants and giving philanthropic dollars to certain kinds of causes and projects, mm. you know, like that was just mind blowing to people. Um, but in the end of it, I've always, all of the things I've done, I've constantly tried to find a reconnection or a connection point to 
my own indigenous values and beliefs. Mm -hmm. I was just going to say it makes sense to me in terms of neuroplasticity, which is how your brain was formed when you were a child, that, that it would make you a very flexible and communicative person. So it, do, it kind of doesn't really surprise me that you went into film and then what you went on to do next, which we'll come on to in a moment. But um, yeah, I, I love what you said about I tried to see the good in, in every bad. And it feels like that was a, a very you know unique and special experience for a child. And you have access to two incredible um, cultural heritages. And I, and I know you've used that, you know, in your work um, to do a lot of good. Mm-hmm. I've understood before about the the greater and the sort of spiritual connection to the earth and nature. What's the specific significance of your particular ancestral lands? Is it just like in evolution where, you know, leopards that live inland eat meat and leopards that live by the water eat fish? You know, is it because of how things developed in time, because of the nature that you, particular nature that your tribes were surrounded with, or is there something bigger than that? That's a great question. <laughs> Thank you. Well, in well, uh, let me see. How can I articulate this? I'll, I'll start with um, with one with my mother's tribe. So you know, going back to the era of you know what and, and what we would call kind of you know, the the time of creation or the beginning time, or there's always these ancestral stories that like, that go, that reach very far back, you know, very far back to, to just beyond a measurable amount of time, you know, mm-hmm. um, in a Western mm-hmm. sense. And, and there, and so there are time frames that are responded to as in terms of how creation happened and how our, how our creator you know, created things and how the process of creation happened. But then there's always these stories of a time when, you know, things were um, out of harmony or where mm-hmm. things weren't, weren't, were happening, you know, against the grain of the way that, you know, our world was created and there was mm-hmm. just disharmony. And so like in my, in my mother's tribe, we do have, we do have a prophet who, who came and who kind of restored, you know, kind of, uh, gave us our laws, our, our traditional laws to live by and, and, and reoriented our societies to be functioning. And, and that prophet known as sweet medicine gave us, you know, laws and practice and ceremonies and, and society, societal structure and a certain place. Which is known as Bear Butte, which is a, a mountain in South Dakota, Novatlus. And it's our, it's known as our sacred mountain. And it's known as that's okay. where that prophet came to the people. And so we have a, we have ties to specific land, um, and, okay. and, and mountains. Um, on my Apache side, when we, when we're recounting the creation of the earth and through song, every specific kind of land formation, mountain, tree, plant, animal are all recounted as a part of that ancestral creation. Um, okay. And they're very specific plants and animals and, and mountain formations that tie us to a very specific place, you know? And so okay. it's very, it's, I'm, yeah. I'm ex- oversimplifying, but, you know, yeah, that, that's sure. kind of going back to the question of why is our land, you know, how do we know that? this land is for us and that we are this land we belong to this land and it's because mm-hmm. of that memory that ancestral memory yeah. that's continually been recounted for ge- generations hundreds of generations you know amazing and you know i think i'm i'm beginning to learn that one of the issues is that when something's recounted orally and then people come in and they've written everything down it's kind of hard to as it were compare those things and claim certain things based on it if the oppressive regime thinks that if it's not written down then it doesn't count then that starts up obviously a whole new range of problems but thank you for simplifying that because yeah. I, I get that and I I will I'm you know I'm trying to learn more all the time but that completely makes sense thank you so much for you know this fascinating overview of the creation stories of the relationship to the land to plants to animals and your personal story of moving between two tribes and then obviously also navigating um, America. Um, so I'd love to hear more about after university, after your first philanthropy job, you moved into the film industry. And um, 
for 20 years or so, you were responsible for in proper and correct and respectful Indigenous representation in film and TV. Um, I know you're doing something a bit different now, but I would love to hear about that first, please. You know, previously, um, well, yeah, like you mentioned, for 20 years, I was the director of Sundance Institute's um, Indigenous program. And um, for those that may not know, Sundance Institute is an arts organization founded by Robert Redford in the United States um, at a time when he personally felt that, you know, the the artistic vitality of American cinema was really in a de- sharp decline um, because of the influence of the box office and film on the creative process and studio systems. And, and so he cre- he, through this organization of Sundance, you know, the notion of what's called independent film was born and independent film in the American context is, is films that are made outside of that studio system. Um, you know, that kind of profit driven, you know, box office driven system, which really mm-hmm. dominates the United, the world, you know, if you think about mm-hmm. it. Uh, and so, um, so basically within that institute, um, you know, uh, Mr. Redford, um, mandated that there would be a thread of work, uh, supporting something that was very close to his heart, uh, which was, which would be to support, you know, Native American and indigenous filmmakers to tell their own stories, for us to tell our own stories from our own points of view as writers, as directors, as producers. Um, to really create a narrative that had, that kind of didn't really exist in American cinema. Mm. Um, and a lot of times even in global cinema. And so, um, and this also stemmed from a, a time in his life when he was an emerging actor in the television world and he was being asked to audition to play an Indian, a Native American, um, on television. Um, and he just thought that was blasphemous, which kind of led him on a personal quest to go and see what he's like. He thought, well, there must be Native American Indian actors. There must be, you know, writers and directors out there working. And through, and through his own environmental activism, he was connected to a lot of Native American communities. And, you know, and he just went on this quest and couldn't necessarily really find people who were writing and directing and producing and very, you know, very even few acting. So he mm-hmm. took it upon himself just to start mentoring people by donating cameras and pulling his friends together to mentor, you know, Native American artists who wanted to tell stories on film. And so, and through that process, he actually kind of created a mentoring process. And that mentoring process became the core of what the Sundance Institute operates to this day, which is its, which are its labs, its lab programs screenwriters labs, directors labs, a mentoring process where the artist is is empowered and the voice of an artist is really empowered and protected and developed and nurtured. And that's why all the films that come out of this, you know, kind of this incubation process um, end up becoming films that most often are premiered at, you know, the um, Sundance Film Festival, again, these films are made outside the studio system. So a lot of the artists who are being given the stage of Sundance Film Festival are artists that most often the studio system in Hollywood have never heard of. And so that's kind of a big break for a lot of people. So within all of that ecosystem, I was responsible for a program to identify Native American and Indigenous screenwriters and directors who had stories that they wanted to tell. And so we ran labs, we ran workshops, we ran intensives. Um, we helped, you know, fi- identify funding. We helped to get films made. We helped to get films, you know, into festivals and onto screens and, you know, and a whole process of, you know, getting indigenous stories out to audiences. And so it was one of my greatest, um, life's passions, you know, for 20 years. And, um, and I, you know, and I don't know, it's, it's, it's something that um, I'm still continuing to do in many different ways, but that was the, the, the core of my work for 20 years. So it's making me think a few things. One is that I have a lot of friends who work in film and TV, um, from like when I was at high school, when I was a, a doctor in the NHS, a lot of them would say, you know, what you do is so worthwhile and what I do 
doesn't really feel like that compared to what you do. And I always said that the impact of film and theatre and music on my me emotionally, my imagination, my learning about things that maybe I hadn't read about or known about it was so huge that I felt I felt it was the other way around. I felt that what they were doing was so important. And I think that particularly with this, that's the way to get the stories out to the bigger world. That's the way to help people to learn and understand about cultures that they may not have come across. Like I lived in rural Australia for two years and before we went out there, um, the movie Rabbit Proof Fence had just come out. So we watched that in the cinema before we went. And I've seen every movie that David Goldfield has been in because I am I was like obsessed with him and those stories. But <laughs> it was a way for me as a doctor in a rural part of a country that I didn't know very well to have some kind of basic understanding of what these people had been through and what their lives were like. Um, and, and to know that by the time, you know, that I was... I was working there as a doctor, that this had been looked at by someone and, and approved and corrected and was a, you know, a, a proper representation. Because I think that one of the issues before that was that Native people were portrayed in a way that was really demeaning and kind of, you know, not just wrong, not just incorrect, but actually portrayed them particularly as inarticulate and backward. And, and you know, I just think it's so important to to bring these stories out to the world for people who want to learn um, and enjoy them. I mean, it's not it's not just about learning. Obviously, now Reservation Dogs has done so well. And I think, you know, people are just enjoying that, you know, it's kind of um, less to do with that. So amazing, you know, what you did. I just think it's so important. Um, and I know that you have done, you've done some, is it collaboration or work with, with people in Australia as well? I have, yeah. Through the, through the Indigenous program at Sundance, one of the things that I did um, when I took over the program and when I, my first, uh, work, uh, heading the program, I had previously done global work through the Ford Foundation and, you know, and through some other uh, work that I'd done. So when I came to the Institute, the program was primarily American focused for Native American mm -hmm. filmmakers. And through my global work previously, I knew that Australia had had, they had indigenous work, um, writers and directors working um, so did New Zealand, um, so did Canada and so many other places around the world, um, who had um, a lot more rep what we call representation, you know, maybe within different national pop cultures. Um, and one of the main inspirations was I went to a conference. I was invited by the late Merita Mitta, who was the first indigenous woman to solely direct a feature film. And she is a Maori woman from New Zealand. And we became friends through an introduction. And she invited me to an Indigenous Women in Film gathering in New Zealand. And it was so profound because there were all these Indigenous women from these different countries, Rachel Perkins from Australia, Alanisa Bonswin from Canada, Merita herself, and, you know, some women also from the United States. And these are all women filmmakers doing, you know, really important, you know, um, work. And, and it made me realize, thankfully, through the, the, the teachings of women and my reliance upon matriarchy in my own life, um, that, you know, there was a, a direction to go there by bringing together indigenous people from different places, you know, to share their knowledge and to share their experiences and expertise and to bring and to use film as the gathering point with, um, indigenous peoples, you know, in different countries. So. And we started working uh, in Australia and New Zealand and Canada as well. Um, and also because within the United States, um, we are particularly invisible. Uh, you know, we've actually been erased uh, from American culture and American popular culture. And that is, you know, a function of the colonization process. You know, it's mm -hmm. like it, it makes modern day Americans feel better about the land that they're on um, if they don't know that there were people previously who lived there who were displaced. And mm -hmm. and so, and like you're referencing the history of misrepresentation, um, you know, the American Western is really um, a form, a, a film style and a form of film that really built the American film system today. And if you look at the history of the Western, the native 
the Native Americans always died in the Western. So the Native people always had to die in the Western film in order for America to be born, in order for America to flourish, you know, and, and for mm. whiteness and white supremacy to, you know, be sustained. And so that's our history of representation within American cinema. And so studies today have shown that um, as many as 80% of Americans don't know that Native American people still exist today as modern peoples. What? And that's because we do not exist. Yep. It's proven by, you know, an organization called Illuminative. They did a, a massive multi-million dollar study uh, called Reclaiming Native Truth. And they found that as much as many as 80% of Americans don't know that Native Americans exist today. And that's because we are invisible and we've been erased from television, uh, um, as well as are the education system from educational curricula. And it's been shown that as much as almost not quite 80%, but of state educational curriculum standards in the United States don't teach about Native Americans past the, the year of 1900. We only exist mm -hmm. in the past. Um, and also that, um, we're only taught up to generally probably like maybe the seventh or eighth grade, uh, of, of most American educational curriculum standards. So, you know, we have a very deliberate, um, erasure and, uh, of native peoples as, as not existing in modern times. So our efforts through cinema and through film, like you said, are to one, to correct over a hundred years of misrepresentation of American, Native American people, uh, but also to try to create, you know, some modern representations of Native people as still living, being, you know, um, flourishing humans <laughs> yeah, <laughs> on television, I mean, in cinema. And, in, you know, and it's life, been quite in a, world. in life. And it's been one of, one of the hardest things I've ever done in, you know, um, but as a community and with the global support of other indigenous, you know, support networks around the world, you know, shows like Reservation Dogs have come into being and Rutherford Falls and, you know, and other TV shows because TV kind of travels a bit further than independent cinema. Yeah. Um, yeah. But we have had quite, quite a lot of success, you know, with, with, with um, feature films as well. You know, honestly, Bird. My brain just went into shock at that statistic and I actually now have a headache. <laughs> I'm not even joking. I, I'm very vis emotional and visceral and I am absolutely mind blown by that statistic. I mean, I was thinking, mm -hmm. well, when I went to Washington, I went to a, uh, I spoke at a conference that was called a weekend festival. So I thought it was the whole weekend, but it was only the Saturday. So I had the whole of Sunday <laughs> in Washington with nothing to do. Um, so uh, I'm... I'm going to confess that the first thing I did was go and see the um, stairs from the Exorcist movie because I, I really love those movies. Um, and then I did go to an art gallery because I also really love art. But the only other thing I did was go to the um, Indian American Museum. And I learned so much. I I knew that I didn't know enough about the history, but um, I really was surprised by how much I learned. And I, I loved... The, the room where they have the four, three posters that say, what is an American? And actually an American is a Native American. They were the first Americans. And um, it's just, it's put really beautifully. It's not meant to like shame anyone. Yeah. And I even learned more about Pocahontas, who, I, who I'm also obsessed with. So it was just for me, like a great, great museum, you know, huge opportunity for learning, but also just like very beautiful. And um, I like, you know, I love kind of like sculpture and, um, spiritual yeah. culture as well. So it was, it was, it was great for that. But I was actually thinking, um, you might have to like sort of correct me on this, but I saw a clip recently. I don't even know why I came across it of, um, a first American woman accepting, I think it was an Oscar, um, but an award for being in a movie mm -hmm. and making this like beautiful, impassioned speech that it was a long time ago and times have changed, right? But Clint Eastwood came on stage after her and said something that was just so it would, would wouldn't be accepted now but some people clapped but 
was just like, mm-hmm. you know, I couldn't believe it. And my jaw actually dropped, but I, I also recognised it was a long time ago and maybe, you know, there was more racism in the UK at that time as well. So we, we all kind of know that that's moved on. Do you, do you know the clip that I'm referring to? Uh, yes, yes. That's when um, um, Marlon Brando was nominated for Best Actor for The Godfather. And, um, and he, um, in the case that he did win, he sent a Native woman uh, named Sashi Littlefeather to uh, decline his Oscar should he win. Oh. And lo and behold... His name was called. Ian, he was announced as the winner, and Sasheen went up and read a speech uh, from Marlon Brando, who at the time, you know, in this in the seventies, you know, he was a big, big um, ally and supporter of the American Indian movement, um, which was really one of our whole particular movements in the seventies to really bring about, you know, uh, awareness of the mistreatment and misrepresentation and. And the failure of American systems to really support Native Americans, as had been promised through treaty rights, you know, mm-hmm. uh, that were made between the United States and Native American tribal governments. And, and so when that happened, Sashin wasn't able to read the full speech, but she encapsulated it and she went off stage. She was threatened, um, by John Wayne, um, backstage. Um, and then Clint Eastwood also came on board. I came up to the microphone and that's where what you're referencing, where he said, you know, um, I can't even remember what he said because it's so blasphemous. I think it was, should I not accept this award because of all the cowboys that have been shot on film? Yeah. Yeah. Something and like he that. also yeah. referenced yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, that that's kind of you know about his heroes always killing Indians or something, you know, to that effect, which both Clint Eastwood and John Wayne, you know, they were the icons of the American Western you know, mm. uh, the film Western. And so to them, you know, that's their heritage. That's, that's their, yeah. you know, their, their um, culture, you know, which was to be Indian killers. And, and that's what they built their careers upon along with, you know, the foundations of our modern film system. But yeah, you know, it's, it's, it, it is shocking to think that, you know, of the, of those percentages and that data that's been found, but it's really fascinating. So whenever I embarked on this journey of running the Sundance Institute's program, I knew that it was an uphill battle because, and I knew that, that, that number wasn't shocking when that data was revealed to me, 80%, you know, because I was, I was engaged in, in the outside American system. I don't know. So if I, if I could backtrack a little. I grew up with a strong sense of self where I was a majority within my community, you mm. know, or my culture, my language and everything were, I was surrounded by, and that was one of the benefits of a reservation system is that it contained our cultures and languages and created these, these, you know, microsystems of culture that continue to exist. And so when I went out, stepped outside of those boundaries, I started realizing that I was always first and only Native American person anyone had ever met. And it was really shocking all the way, you know, going into graduate school and starting my professional career in New York City and and then going into the film industry. And I recognized very early on that most of the decision makers, the people who held the power to whether green light films or to pull the trigger on distributing a film into American theaters came from that 80%. They did not know that we existed. And so that really affected the success of all of these great films that we were collect, that we were creating, um, and trying to put into the marketplace is that nobody could truly grasp, like, what is this a foreign film? It didn't fit into the already carved out boxes, the neat categories and boxes of cinema and film that they had studied, you know, and that they were putting out into the marketplace. And so our poor little, you know, indigenous films just were too much for people to handle because they had native languages in them. They were, you know, they were really, really innovative, interesting, authentic, you know, first person stories of real life, Mm. you know, things. They were comedies, you know, they were, they were dramas, they were documentaries, they were historical, they were modern. You know, there were all so many different things and they just really blew people's minds, you know, um, which is, that was part of the fun, 
that was that was what our community did. We loved challenging each other. We loved trying, you know, when I mean, Warwick Thornton out of Australia, you know, uh, who made a stunning film uh, called Samson and Delilah. Um, when he and Taika Waititi, who won an Oscar for Jojo Rabbit, would get together with Sterling Harjo, who's one of the co-creators of Res Dogs, and he made many films. When when those three would get together and just start expanding on cinematic history and form and technique and filmmaking, and it was mind blowing. It was brilliant, you know. And and I, you know, and all three of them are now on a particular pathway to their own types of success. Um, Mm-hmm. But, you know, and that was the beauty of our of our indigenous film community, you know, those creative minds coming together from all these different backgrounds and experiences and 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 really innovating on filmmaking. Yeah. And I mean, you know, everybody's brain is scared of what it doesn't know. And I think it's amazing to hear that people like Robert Redford and Marlon Brando were such allies and, you know, that you and people like you had like pushed against the grain to to change things. Um, but I also think, you know, even if there's just one tiny thing that I can do as just a neuroscientist, which is have this podcast and have this episode come out and the people that follow me, I know are like really caring and authentic, hear this kind of thing. Just, you know, any little change that anyone can make, like we can all do something. And it's it's just um, such a privilege and an honour to have have you as a guest I think you are the first person that's really rattled me on on my own podcast with, with some of the things that you've shared um sorry so about that I'd, no no I I love it I think it's great that it had that impact on me I hope it has that impact on everyone else um please tell us a little bit about what you're doing now because I know you recently changed over from Sundance yeah well you know um as in my going into my 19th and 20th years at Sundance Institute, and this was also kind of, you know, we had that great event known as the pandemic uh, and lockdown, which we're, you know, we're still in the pandemic. Um, you know, uh, that that's when um, two of the artists that I had supported wholeheartedly through Sundance, uh, Sterling Harjo, uh, who comes from the Seminole and Creek nations of Oklahoma, and Taika Waititi, who is a Maori filmmaker from New Zealand. He belongs to the Tafano Apanui uh, Iwi. And um, the two of them collaborated to create a TV show, which is called Reservation Dogs. And that show was getting ready to go to air. We had another, our first Native American show, which is called Rutherford Falls, which was uh, created, uh, co-created by uh, Sierra Teller Ornelas, who is a Navajo woman. Our uh, writer, comedy writer, and showrunner. Um, she created that show with Ed Helms and Mike Schur, and from who uh, have a great history of creating great TV shows. So those two shows were in the works and going to air, and you know, and you know, I, I kind of started thinking: Am I still going to be able to, you know, um, help inspire and create more work that's going to, you know? I think eventually get into the commercial space, um, you know, on whether network TV or whether on streamers or, you know, just Mm. some interesting way just to continually to reach more audiences and to Mm. remind people that, yes, we still do exist. So I was offered and accepted um, a, a deal, what's called a producing deal from Amazon Studios, which is a global streamer and also a larger company uh, to create films and TV shows. And, you know, and it's been a bit of a rough ride because I've essentially not the Sundance Institute is what we call a nonprofit, you know, um, a nonprofit organization that doesn't work to do anything to make money. It does, you know, we have as an organization, we had to fundraise to raise money to, to do the, you know, specific kind of work we did. But I was moving over to, you know, a very specific capitalistic world and commercialized space. And, and it's been a huge learning curve. I've learned so much. Um, but also, you know, as you know, Hollywood right now, we're in a strike. Mm. You know, the writers yeah. are striking. The actors are striking most often, mostly because of streamers, um, and the disproportionate mm-hmm. wages and, um, and, uh, budgets. That, that they allocate towards productions. And, and sadly, that's where all of our Native American success is happening is with streamers, you know? And so, mm-hmm. um, 
there's a lot, if there's a lot of context there, but I've walked the picket line with our native writers and our indigenous writers and, you know, and I support their efforts to, you know, receive increased wages. Um, and so, but in that, there, in this time that I've been, you know, trying to incubate and to kind of create TV shows, I've had a number of TV shows that have been moving along, um, in the development process. And, um, and now that the strike has happened, everything is pretty much just frozen and dead right now. So I am producing on, you know, a, a feature documentary, um, uh, which is, that's the only kind of work that's being allowed to happen right now, which is unscripted work and work that doesn't involve actors. Mm-hmm. So a documentary is what I'm doing. And, and that's kind of, that's pretty exciting. That's going back to my roots of where I started in philanthropy, you know, 27 years ago, funding documentaries. And so it's kind of refreshing to go back to also my journalistic roots where I trained as a journalist to do an unscripted show. So, you know, so much remains to be seen. Our first TV show, Rutherford Falls, has since been canceled. Reservation Dogs has said this is going to be their last season, you know, on the streamer of Hulu. And so, you know, so we're all kind of waiting to see, you know, there's a lot being, you know, developed and incubated right now. So, you know, we'll see. What happens with so much of us who are really trying to push forward, you know, great ideas and great TV shows and great movies? Well, what I'm really hearing is that you're always pushing the boundaries. I can sense how much you draw resilience and other things from your traditional heritage. And remember what you said to me right at the beginning about your tribe always innovating. So it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a bad time in the film industry at the moment, but I feel very sure that you're going to come out like a phoenix from the flames with some amazing new idea. So I, I, I say watch I this space, so. everyone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm sure so. Um, yeah. So actually, I had a question going back a little bit to something we were discussing earlier, which is why do you think that Australia and New Zealand and Canada it sounds to me from what you were saying, we're more progressive in in this area than than America. Do you have any idea why you think that is in your industry? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I have some theories of my own. Um, I, I do believe, you know, because those particular countries do uh, fall under the Commonwealth and, you know, and the crown. Um, mm. I think that their, their, their societies um, are are organized very differently than American, you know, a governance and society. Um, America is just basically, you know, a capitalistic nation, um, where, you know, um, we don't, we don't really have much in terms of public support for the arts. Whereas in Canada and Australia and New Zealand, um, and I, and maybe that just stems from, you know, the, their, um, them being a part of the Commonwealth and part of, you know, the crown and, and the way things are done, you know, maybe with European, you know, art support and systems. So a lot of things are also much more managed by the government. And so there's a lot more, there are film funds, there are arts organized for arts funding, and, and there are ways for people to, I think, live a much more creative life thanks to public support. And so within the States, we don't have that. So the history of kind of even the American independent film scene and world was like, there's just always this, this huge narrative of how people, artists, um, you know, people like Robert Rodriguez, you know, when he was making El Mariachi, you know, he financed that film by, you know, donating blood, you know, weekly or something, you know, or wow. people would max out credit cards, you know, to get their first film made because they're just, there was no support for filmmaking. It were entirely our film filmmaking world is entirely capitalistic, you know, and equity based and finance oriented. And, you know, so there's a lot, a whole different game that goes into that. So, you know, and but also if I look at the indigenous film movements within those particular countries, you know, um, treaty rights have played a huge role in the, and I think the advancement of native indigenous filmmaking in other countries. Um, Canada, you know, has, you know, a particular colonial history with the way that the Indian Act and the way that native people and Inuit people, um, 
you know, manage their modern existence in, in Canadian society, mm-hmm. as well as their own arts and film and television. But there is an Aboriginal People's Television Network up in Canada, which has been around for a while. Um, okay. uh, New, Austra- uh, New Zealand, um, you know, they historically have what's called the Treaty of Waitangi, um, which they, you know, negotiated with the crown and reps from the crown to create, you know, to preserve and to protect um, you know, so much of their, their Maori world and sovereignty. Um, mm-hmm. but when it comes to Australia, interestingly, you know, they don't have treaties. They don't have a treaty right. You know, they don't, they, they, as even up until, I don't even know if it's changed, but up until years ago, um, they, the indigenous people were listed amongst the, fl- the flora and the fauna within, you know, the Australian constitution. And so politically, they have no, they have no rights within Australian society. And so that, like, and if you look at their issues around representation, you know, they, that like their political vitality is so entrenched in their filmmaking to prove that, you know, they do exist, you know, as indigenous peoples prior to the foundation of Australia, country of Australia. so, you know, yeah. there's a lot of, there's so much of our filmmaking is really entrenched in so much of our desire to be seen and for, 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 for the colonial governments and countries, you know, to honor where we do have treaties, to honor our treaty rights. Um, and to, um, because specifically within the United States, every treaty that was ever made, um, with the United States government was broken by the United States government. You know, promises were made in the exchange for land. Promises were made, you know, and so many other for so many other things affecting modern life today, like water, mineral mm-hmm. rights, land mm-hmm. rights, you know, and so many other things. There are so many contemporary issues that are going before the United States Supreme Court again, where more than likely they come from that 80 per 80% mm-hmm. of people mm-hmm. who don't know that we exist. So our political rights are being affected and determined by an entire American court system and an American Congress and so many other people who don't know that we exist. So that's why film, storytelling, filmmaking, television mm. to me is so important. And it's why it's really kind of why I do what I do. I also have a master's degree in public policy, so I can go on for days about that. Well, I was going to say, you know, having lived in Australia and um, my first husband being South African, I have a view on how those various countries have managed their treatment of marginalised groups. But that is a whole other podcast series, not even episode. Um, But I do think it was it's interesting to me to hear from you that to a large extent funding was is, is was part of that issue because. I wouldn't say that the situation in Australia is that different to the situation in America in terms of the actual treatment of indigenous people. But because of those films, which became very famous, um, I think it, you know, it really has made a difference. Um, Not enough of a difference, but it's not, we can't really say that people couldn't be aware of those things. They were big feature films. Um, So yeah, I completely agree with you. Um, I have you for about 10 more minutes and I have a burning question um, because we started this conversation in LA. Um, So we spoke about the traditional view of things like femininity, gender identity, sexual orientation. And, you know, these can be seen to some extent as not modern challenges, but, you know, things that have evolved a lot over time in terms of acceptance. So I was quite surprised to hear what you said. I'd love you to share that with with our listeners. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that I um I feel like has happened in so many aspects of 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 indigenous life in so many places um was the influence of I think Western religion, specifically in our region, kind of the the Catholic Church, you know. And um because prior to um the colonization process, you know, our indigenous societies were really structured in a way that, um, that viewed gender, that viewed, um, individuals in, 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 in the way that our society functioned, um, so differently. And I, the way that I could explain it bottom line is that there was always a place for everyone. 
And mostly because, as I mentioned, you know, historically we were, whether we were nomadic societies or whether we were sedentary societies, farming cultures, um, everybody, you know, the, the baseline was always kind of, you know, an element of survival. You know, you had to kind of, you had to have food, you had to have, um, a level of sustainability. And so everybody played a role in that, no matter what your gender was, no matter what your, you know, maybe, uh, sexuality was. And also, and all, and so many of our societies, indigenous societies, gender was not a bite, was not viewed as being binary. You know, it wasn't oh. just two genders, you know? Okay. And so if I, I, I know that I, you know, I've read books about, um, you know, about different tribal views, um, of, and also kind of about how, how, you know, um, some of the first people arriving into indigenous lands were just from, from Europe, from, uh, European, um, folks were just like, um, I don't even know what the word, <laughs> blown away by, you know, an aspect of genders, you know, by a diversity of genders, you know, um, and where, where things weren't always necessarily defined by the binary, by, let's say, you know, genitalia, you know, or mm -hmm. sexuality as, and mm -hmm. as defined as they saw it within a binary. And so, you know, there's in our modern day world today, there's a huge movement that's, you know, it's really grown significantly called the two spirit movement, um, which is mm -hmm. really a lot of Native American people from different tribal cultures coming together under this modern kind of creation called two-spirit identity to really look at our ancestral indigenous tribal cultures to go to find out, you know, what, 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 what were our gender spaces prior, you know, to European arrival and prior to, you know, religious, you know, uh, church arrival, um, to our mm -hmm. communities. And, and it's been really, it's been really amazing to watch. You know, I myself identify as being two spirit within that context. And, mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, you, we kind of look back and like, I know that there are some cultures like the Navajo that have, I think the Navajo tribe, which has, you know, a multitude of genders, um, beyond just male and female. They have grades in between going back to, uh -huh. and, and a lot of times they also tied back to, these gender, the multitude of gender roles where some of them, you know, whether the feminine man or the masculine woman were actually mm -hmm. sacred beings within okay. a historical ancestral context. And so, you know, and I don't want to give too much, too much information about, you know, another tribes, you know, views and whatnot, but yeah. that could be, yeah, I don't yeah. want to be inaccurate, but, you know, and a lot of tribes, you know, did have that um, sanctity tied to, you know, um, you know, their community members who were feminine men and masculine women and, and people who mm -hmm. crisscrossed roles, you know, granted there was a lot of role definition, like in my Apache side, like, you know, we had women warriors who fought alongside mm. male warriors, um, yeah. you know, and it was not that big a deal. It was just, it was all hands on deck. We were fighting, you know, we were a warrior culture and whether we were fighting enemy tribes or maybe with the arrival of the Spanish, we were fighting the Spaniards. Um, you know, it's like, it was always, you know, of being a warrior culture, you're defending your land, your territory, your food systems. And so everybody had to fight, you know? And so, you know, there wasn't so much rigidity, I think, around men only do this and women only do this in a lot of different mm -hmm. ways. Um, and also, um, you know, I'm also reminded that there's a lot more harmony between genders. You know, one wasn't subservient to the other or one mm -hmm. wasn't dominant to the other. Because if you looked at a lot of our ceremonies, um, our ceremonial renewals of recounting creation, recounting the earth, recounting, you know, uh, uh, the creation of the earth, recounting kind of, um, what we call renewing the earth. We have ceremonies that do that. Um, a lot of people, um, you had to have a man and a woman in order for a ceremony to happen. And they had to be harmonious. And one wasn't more important than the other. 
You know, whereas now, you know, within American culture, we live in a world of patriarchy, which is really, I think, a huge imbalance. I also think that in some ways we are coming round to the greatest acceptance of gender fluidity that, you know, certainly in my lifetime or and, and longer than that. And less so, but some kind of understanding that there's masculinity and femininity in both men and women. Also, you just reminded me that um, at my wedding, we actually read out two poems called, called Amends Between Men and Women. And I think they they came from my friend who lives in New Mexico. I think they originate from a, a First American um, tradition. <laughs> and I remember you could hear a pin drop in the room as, as you know, <laughs> I was reading. And I said, may women receive this healing. And then I said, may men receive this healing. And... But it's making me quite emotional just saying it now. But, you know, I really, I'm getting the sense, I know you can't speak too much about it, but I'm getting the sense that I just hope we can return to some of these, this this ancient wisdom that can only help us, you know, in this world, like where we started off saying the world's in crisis. And I completely agree with what you said. It's an emotional and spiritual crisis more than anything else. If we could sort that out, we could deal with climate change. We could deal with the rise of AI. But that's, you know, that's where... Yeah. We have to look inward. So before I get too emotional, <laughs> I think we could draw this to a close. So um, yeah. please could you tell people like where they can follow you on social media, how they can find out more about your work? You know, maybe um, I'm sure people will be so interested if there's like any way that they can learn or help. Um, what are the best places to find you? Yeah, well, um, my social media handles, I'm on, I'm on Twitter, Argus X, formerly known as Twitter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> at, and it's at, at bird running H2O. My whole name wouldn't fit. So running water okay. being my last name. It's, it's bird running H2O. And that's also <laughs> my Instagram handle. Yeah. Um, and so I, I am on both of those platforms. And, you know, it's kind of the best way, you know, um, that, that I, that I kind of try to update where things are at, where, what things are happening. And, you know, I really admire your podcast. I think it's something that I'm, I would love to explore trying to think about, you know, as a way of reaching the masses and sharing yeah. stories as well. But filmmaking for now and TV making, you know, is also a part of that. But I guess maybe I'm interested in trying to be a bit more multimedia in different ways. Yeah, so. yeah. You'd be amazing at that. We can definitely help you with that. Um, we were, in fact, introduced by the person who in, who got me into this podcast. So, um, yeah. And I I have not forgotten we need to get a selfie the next time because we forgot to do that when I met you. So yes. <laughs> we'll, we'll make sure yes. that happens. Put it on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Please. <laughs> Thank you so much. I've honestly loved this episode. Thank you so much for having me. It's You've really challenged me with your questions and <laughs> and also trying to think about, you know, my own neuroplasticity and and how it applies to so many aspects of how I how I live my life and how I see the world. And, you know, so thank you for that. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you so much. If you have a question or comment for me, please email or send an audio recording of your question to Dr. Tara at Knox.studio. This has been Reinvent Yourself with Dr. Tara, a Knox Studios podcast. <laughs>